welcome to the Tech Enthusiast Hour podcast, uh, where several hosts talk about the week's technology news and our opinions about them. We've got three hosts this week, which means we'll have at least nine opinions. And uh, the show notes for this episode are at tehpodcast.com slash teh8. First uh, introductions, I'm Kevin Savitz. I am such a tech enthusiast and geek that uh, I just finished playing the uh, 1984 Infocom text adventure game, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And uh, that's what I did all weekend. Uh, And uh, Leo, what about you? I'm Leo Notenboom, chief question answerer out at askleo.com. And I tend to play more modern games. My afternoon was spent a little bit of time buried in World of Warcraft. Gary. I'm Gary, the host and producer of MacMost.com, where I post new Mac, iPhone, and iPad tutorials. I also make mobile games. I've got one coming out, and I'll talk about it on the show in future weeks. And uh, you can find my games at CleverMedia.com. And I just finished playing uh, Pillars of Eternity, really cool uh, you know, RPG, old-style RPG game that uh, was actually crowdfunded is how it it got started. It's really cool, but I'm I'm jealous, Kevin, because I love the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy text, uh, you know, Infocom game. And I played it when it first came out. It was like the only one of those games that I actually played <laughs> when it came out, mm-hmm. and I did really well on it because I immersed myself so much in the books and the radio drama. That, sure. Uh, that yeah, that I really kind of got the sense of humor that was put in there. Well, my uh, I, another podcast I, I do uh, is called Eaten by a Grew, and me and my buddy are playing through all of the the Infocom games. We started with with Zork, and you know, we're, and uh, Hitchhikers is far and away the one that m- most listeners have been asking for. Just like when are you going to do Hitchhikers, you know, and, and uh, so we finally did it. And uh, I had played it when it came out in '84, uh, and uh, I played it again. And I these I, I haven't really thought about the game in that time very much but i apparently had these latent neurons that like knew how this game works because i knocked it out in a weekend it's supposed to be one of the one of the hardest uh, of the infocom text adventures and my brain was just like oh yeah here's how you get the babel fish in your ear no problem so <laughs> <laughs> yeah definitely i uh did you mention on your show which i've, I've listened to before it's a great show the uh, uh that you could play i think you could still play the game at bbc's website they had a they have a version or, or had a version um, that I played that actually put images for each room you were in. Mm. So the text was exactly the same as the original, mm. but they would show you also a picture. It was an illustration and, um, and it was free. And mm. I, I don't know if it's cool. still there or not. And, I was uh, unaware I, of that. No, I, I yeah. played it. I played the original Infocom version. There were some nice uh, uh, interpreters, Z machine interpreters for modern computers. So you can take the, those original data files and 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 use them on a nice modern screen with scroll back and you know arbitrary saves and, and things that 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 uh, a modern computer user would, would enjoy so that's how i play them cool and, and i imagine you're probably going to get requests now to do bureaucracy the uh, follow-up douglas adams yeah i think so the, the number two that. the number two most requested is uh, is planet fall um oh yeah which is another sci-fi infocom game yeah Cool. Well, we should probably well, let's move to 2018. Aww. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I know, I know, it sucks. Um, and uh, and get with our stories. And um, so today, well, and that's this is Monday when we're recording this. Uh, Amazon opened up their convenience store to the public. Um, so they, for a while, have had this store in Seattle, 
I think it's just called Amazon Go. And it's a convenience store and it was open to employees before and now it's the public. And the basic concept is there's no cashiers. You walk in, you pick stuff up off the shelf and you leave. And it automatically charges you for the items that you took. Uh, and it's like a supermarket. It's like grocery, you know, fresh salads and, you know, regular items you find in markets and supermarkets and 7-Elevens and stuff. And the basic idea is there is an app and you do have to scan like a code on your app when you first walk in. And there's cameras everywhere, which makes it feel very big brothery. But um, the cameras watch you and then you scan the app, the, the screen of your app on your phone, and that associates your body, your physical body in the store with your account. So the cameras then basically follow you around. They don't move, but there's cameras everywhere. It looks at your clothing and your height and probably all sorts of other things about you. Keeps track of where you are. As you lift items off the shelves, it uses the cameras and also little weight sensors and things to figure out what you've picked up, what you've put back. Um, and you can just stuff items in your backpack or do whatever you want. And, uh, and then when you have what you want, you just leave. And the text that you've left the store in it then just charges your account for the items you took. So you don't have to wait in line. I guess that's a big advantage, right? Is like sure. part of modern society in the United States is you, even if you just stop for just a little market or whatever, if, if probably the longest period of time in the store is just waiting in line to check out sometimes. Yeah. All I want to do, all I want to do is go to this place and, and try to figure out how to steal from it. I, I want to go yes. in there. I want to change my sweatshirt. I want to put my, my phone uh, in, you know, in airplane mode and I want to change my clothes and I want to just rip open a, a packet of peanuts and just start eating them in the store and see <laughs> how I can do with that. <laughs> so it, they had some interesting thoughts about that in, in some art, different articles that I read and the site, you know, they have a whole page about this stuff. Um, and they had some interesting assumptions. And my first thoughts were also as like a computer software guy is to like, how do you thwart people from stealing? And one interesting thing that came up right away was the fact that most people do not want to shoplift. And I was like, oh yeah, duh, because I immediately think of like, okay, everybody walking into the store is going to try to take something. No, actually the vast majority of people are actually just going to want to, you know, do, you know, pay for what they they've taken and all that. So they're only dealing with the small number of people that may actually want to, to steal something. And most of those people probably at the beginning are people like you, Kevin, that just want to do it because you want to try to fool the technology. Sure. Yeah. I would love, I would love to be able to have a, like a way to do it. And then an amnesty, you know, checkout at the end where I could, if, if you could steal it from the store, but you immediately head to this amnesty checkout, you're fine. So you could steal your, your peanuts and then walk past and say, I did it and walk over and say, now I like to pay for my peanuts. But you, but then also you could, you, you can't steal. I mean, it's, it's anybody could go. I didn't know. I was just came in and I took what I wanted and I left <laughs> it, You, you could absolutely claim I don't innocence at any point, And even though you're, I'm pretty sure the app though, you have to download the app and then sign yeah. up. I'm pretty sure that in that process, it says, please don't steal from our store. <laughs> so, so Gary, you know, as you know, this is, you know, I'm up in, in the Seattle area and this yeah. is actually big time news up here. I, Field I, trip. I, yeah. I, uh, well, so unfortunately from my perspective, it's in downtown Seattle. Surprisingly, it's actually not that far from Amazon headquarters. <laughs> um, and downtown Seattle is pretty, pretty, 
I don't know, automobile and friendly. And, and it's a, just a, it's a nightmare to get around sometimes. So I tend to, let's just say I did not make um, a, a field trip for this. But um, like I said, there's lots and lots of coverage out here. Have you seen some of the pictures of the inside of the place? Yeah, yeah, I did. Uh, it looks pretty impressive. What surprised me about some of the photographs are that uh, are just how many cameras there are. And they don't really look a lot like cameras. I mean, the, the ceiling has all of these oddly placed boxes. And if you look very closely at them, yeah, there might be a pinhole camera in there or a very small webcam style cameras poking out of them. There's just a lot of them. So, of course, like Kevin, my, my very first thought is, okay, how do I, how do I defeat the system, right? How do, I, how do I steal something? And, you know, it's going to be really, really hard given the number of cameras. Supposedly, besides sensors and so forth, there's actually even cameras like in the coolers. So they're looking at you from the backside of the cans of Diet Coke that you're about to steal. Um, it's just really, really interesting. I'm really impressed that they can at least just get it to the point of associating that this particular item went with that particular person. That's an amazing problem to have solved in that kind of an environment. Yeah, it's, they equate it to a self-driving car, similar technology, lots of cameras, figuring out where things are, what things are doing, um, stuff like that. And, and then, of course, you also have to figure that they don't need to get to 0% stealing. Because no store has 0% stealing, right? It's one of the points I was going to make is that they, I'm sure that they factored in some acceptable loss figure. Yeah. Now, unlike your self-driving car where acceptable loss is kind of something you don't want to hear about, um, in the grocery business, absolutely. I mean, years ago, before I even went to school, I worked in the grocery store, and that was one of the things that we, we were aware of. Um, it's called shrinkage. Things walk out the door. And um, in back then, we didn't have the opportunity to try and figure out what they were. We just knew that, you know, all of a sudden there was one less half rack of beer or something like that. And it probably walked out the door without anybody noticing. Um, but yeah, I, I'm sure that they've got that factored in. And given, I mean, everything that they're doing here is obviously an experiment. They've got exactly one of these stores. Uh, it'll be interesting to, for them to see what they learn from this experience. Will shrinkage be a problem? Will it be more or less than they expected? Um, and, you know, where will they take it next? It's just, I, I find this really interesting. And you're right. One of the things that the biggest time sinks in going into almost any kind of a convenience store is that it's wonderfully convenient until you actually have to step up to the counter. Even if there's nobody else there, you still have to sit there and fumble around with your card or maybe even your cash, and you have to interact with another human being. I mean, who wants to do that? So <laughs> exactly. It's, 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 it's a geek's dream from my perspective. It's like, okay, walk in, grab your can of soda and a sandwich and walk out, and you're done. Yeah, for me, it's not even about you know the, the fact that they may not have to have as many employees. Like, say we go five years in the future and Amazon has a thousand of these stores nationwide or 5,000 of these stores nationwide, they could have still have people working there. Matter of fact, they say that there is a person that will be notified. Like if the computers can't figure out what's going on with somebody or some product or something, there's a little notification that comes up. Somebody who's sitting at a computer that has all of the cameras available to them can actually intervene and probably has little controls to be able to do things. And 
having that person there, of course, that's an employee that you have to pay. But there's two different things. There's the employee that you have to pay that you might be able to get rid of because it's all automatic. But there's also the checkout time, like you said, Leo. If I'm okay with them employing, you know, if they need to employ a couple people to check the cameras, as long as it doesn't delay me getting out of the store. I'm interested not in the, you know, less employment thing. That actually sounds kind of bad, but I'm interested in the, I just want to be able to know I could, if I know where that product is in the store, I, I find my parking space. It's like, how long does it take me to walk over there, grab it, walk out, and then I'm gone. Instead of this variable, it could take two minutes. It could take 15 minutes. I don't know. The less employment thing to me has always been a red herring when there's new technology involved. Yep. You know, there may be fewer cashiers employed, but there's so many other jobs that keep getting created by all of this technology moving forward too. It's just not an argument that I, that I actually have a lot of patience for. Well, and they're usually, you know, they're the lowest paying jobs, you know, like a cashier job. They actually yeah. showed that they do have employees in the store, at least in the pictures, because they're stocking the shelves. Stocking the shelves. And uh, apparently there's a lot of fresh, ready to eat food. So there's uh, one of the pictures that I saw was like this line of three or four people preparing sandwiches. Right. Like so, so yeah, so you may, it may, it's not, it's not about less employees. It's about taking that one employee away that was actually slowing down the process because of the logistics. Of Do the either of you have a, uh, an actual, a regular Amazon physical store um, accessible to you? No. No, we have one of those pickup places in downtown Portland um, where you can have stuff shipped there to get it, I think, faster rather than so having. So in, um, in one of the shopping centers here, uh, one of the malls, there is an actual Amazon store. It's a bookstore. You can go in there and you can actually see and touch books. Not surprisingly, there's a lot of Kindles and other kinds of things, which to sure. me actually is one of the nice appealing parts of it because on, a, on one hand, buying a Kindle, if you haven't seen one before, is kind of a leap of faith. But even just being able to walk into a store and touch it before you buy it uh, gives you that extra level of confidence. I finally saw one of the newer models of Kindles and decided that, yeah, this really was an appropriate gift for my wife. And I don't think I would have made that decision had I not actually been able to see it. What's interesting about the experience there, I didn't buy the Kindle then, but I did buy a couple of other things when I walked in. And because, you know, obviously I'm an Amazon Prime member, I've got the Amazon Prime Visa, and checking out was almost as painless as what they've described for the Amazon Go store, the grocery store. I handed the person, there was a person, my credit card and the items. She scanned a couple things and handed everything back to me and said goodbye. I mean, it was almost literally that simple a process. And I got an emailed receipt a few minutes later because of course everything associated with me is on my, is associated with my Amazon prime card. That's my default payment option out of Amazon. So they could quickly look me up. They've got my email address. They knew everything about me, which, you know, good or bad. It made this experience extremely fluid, extremely um, uh, you know, quick. I thought that was actually pretty cool. So like, it's interesting to watch Amazon Go move even further in that, in that, uh, in that step. Yeah, I've actually done the um, self-checkout at Apple stores. And uh, that's where you use the Apple Store app on your iPhone. I didn't know you could um, do that. Yeah, so it's, actually it's been for years they've had it. Um, 
you walk in, you pick up something. It has to be something you can pick up off the shelf. So you can't like an iMac. They have to go into the back and get it for you. But like the last time I was there, I had to pick up some new uh, earbuds for a family member. And um, I just grabbed it off the shelf. And I opened up the Apple Store app. Uh, It recognized that I was in an Apple Store and asked if I wanted to do self-checkout. The camera came on. I scanned the barcode. Uh, it was Apple Pay, so I just you know used Face ID since I have an iPhone 10, <laughs> and it said uh, you're done. And it came up on the screen with a receipt, like a like a, something I could show somebody if I needed to. Oh right. But you don't need to. You just so you I you know I I leave it up on the screen myself, so I have it in my hand. I'm and I, I will walk out of the store. Feels uh, weird, it, doesn't it? It feels very. <laughs> I've done it several times, all for items that are like off the shelf, like a trackpad and a, some earbuds and a charger and things like that. And uh, it feels very weird, but you know, you hold that. That's why I kind of clutch the phone in my hand with that receipt showing. That <laughs> <laughs> just, I just, it's not that the Apple, you know, employees. If an Apple employee stops me, I'm sure they they know what this is about. They would probably just ask me, "Oh, can I just see the receipt on your phone?" But I just want, if somebody else happened to be watching me, you know, because the store near me is always crowded. If somebody happened to notice like that, I think I was looking at those earphones and I was just leaving. You know, I want them to maybe catch a glimpse of me holding that receipt in my hand. <laughs> that's, that's, that's how the employees know that you're a legitimate pers- uh, purchaser because you look nervous and guilty as yes. you left the store. <laughs> exactly. If you're someone like me who actually wants to like learn how to, you know, s- steal things from high-tech stores, someone with larceny in their heart apparently, um, <laughs> I, I would just walk out of the place like, you know, it was my soul. And then that's how they know. They go like, oh, this guy, he doesn't look nervous and guilty. Uh, as he's- I think that's a, that could be an interesting little uh, startup there, Kevin, is you could, uh, you know, get kind of get paid by these companies to try to steal from them. Yeah. Right. So you sign up with Amazon and with Apple and all these, you know, your little things that I will try to steal from your store. And uh, if I get away with it, you guys have to vouch for me that I, you're paying me to do this or yeah. maybe not paying me, that's but good idea. Like those guys who do like penetration testing of like office buildings. Yeah, or mystery shopping. Uh-huh. I was yeah, thinking yeah. it was just a combination of penetration sh- or penetration testing and uh, mystery shopping. I like it. And you could even you know start you start it up without even any money. It's like, hey, I'm not gonna, I don't need any money to start up. I just want to prove to you this concept, and uh, I'll give you the products back. I don't need um, any I just money. Make to make sure start, I don't get arrested. <laughs> I don't need. I don't need any money to start this up. I'm just gonna steal some stuff off your shelf. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's pretty awesome. It dawns, on me that, it dawns on me that my experience at Starbucks is actually very similar to what you just described at Apple. Because again, I've got the Starbucks app on my phone. And mm-hmm. yes, you know, I go in there and I order a drink. So I'm interacting with a real person. And yep, they scan my, my, you know, the beans that I happen to be buying at the time. But every time they ask me, you know, do you want the receipt? Well, no, I don't want a receipt. I don't need a receipt. I'm a paperless kind of guy. Um, and the last time I was there, I says, you know, as long as you guys don't try and tackle me as I leave the store, we're good. So, yeah, actually, I had another similar, well, slightly different shopping experience at. Um, there's a chain called uh, Native Foods. Actually, Leo, you and I were there when when you came here to visit. Yes. Um, and they switched their little rewards program to an app. So they used to be used to you know, give them your phone number and then they would, you know, it's like, oh, every 10th order is free or whatever. And they switched to this app and the app does all sorts of things, notifies me with coupons and it's a whole marketing deal. But the app, uh, so I have to show it and there's a little scanner there and it shows like a, a barcode kind of thing on the screen. And 
I, I do that to get my rewards points and to cash in my rewards. And I, I might even be able to put money on it too. Um, and the funny thing was is when I went to use it for the uh, second time, the first time I, they had me sign up for it, second time I went to use it, I thought it would be like, oh, I'll get it up on the screen. As I check out, I'll just pass it over the little scanner and I'm done. But I had to pass it over the scanner. Then I had to hit a confirm button. <laughs> then I had, had to go to another screen, hit another confirm button that I wanted to apply this credit to what I was doing. And then it came up with a further confirmation screen. It was like four confirmation screens that I had to do. And of course, I had to make the comparison right there as I was standing there to the Hawaii Emergency Management uh, system. <laughs> How it took me four confirmation screens to apply my $5 credit at the, the Native Foods restaurant. But yet, Hawaii, you were able to do one confirmation screen to make the entire state very scared. Pretty hilarious. So, yeah. So speaking of uh, making no. people scared. Do we have time for other topics? Or are we on? <laughs> yeah, really. listening to the Tech Enthusiast Hour podcast right at the time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so, no, if you want to be scared, you, you want to move on to Facebook? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's always good for a scare, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so... Last week, we think we talked about how they're changing the algorithm. This week, an interesting item came across at least my news feed that I thought was, was worthy of at least thinking about. One of Facebook's problems over the past, well, it's clear, over the past couple of years has been understanding what is and what is not a reputable source, uh, whether you call it fake news or just unreliable sources or you know, just your, your crazy uncle ranting about a particular topic. Um, it's very, very difficult for most people to understand exactly what they do or what they should and should not believe as it crosses their newsfeed. And one of the things that people have suggested is that Facebook somehow vet the news sources that come across. In other words, Facebook would invest some amount of time and energy and, and people, literally physical people watching and looking at news sources and deciding or determining whether or not those news sources are reputable for some definition of reputable. As it turns out, they apparently don't want to get into that business. Uh, they're a concern, as I read this afternoon, was that it would, ref it would basically be negative reviews on them. They would come out a loser in this, no matter how accurately they judged um, various news sources to be. So what they've elected to do instead, and I don't know that they've started doing this yet, but what they've elected to do instead is they're going to select some what they call representative sample of Facebook users and ask them to do it. They're going to survey people on their opinion of the reputation, reliability, accuracy of the news sources that they run across uh, in their news feeds. That seems like an interesting approach. I mean, it really is just crowdsourcing the problem. It's basically asking everybody for their opinion. But as we know, and one of the things that's kind of become evident over the last year and a half is that that can go wrong pretty quickly. 
And it'll be, to my way of thinking, it'll be really interesting as an experiment. But I'm a little concerned that it will be itself <laughs> less than reputable, less than accurate, less than reliable. What do you guys think? I, I think it, I see. It's, I think this is like a terrible idea that is it's uh, doomed to fail for a bunch of reasons. Uh, number one, I mean, if people are being fooled by fake news, then and then you ask those same people to just judge whether news sources are fake or not, you're going to get skewed data. And also people are, I think, also going to negatively judge news sources that they just don't like. You might get a, a left-wing person who says that, Fox News is is no good. You might get a far right winger who says that the New York Times is 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 no good. When you know, arguably both are are valid news sources. You know, for certain people. So, I I just think that there's a lot to be said for true editorial judgment, and uh, that's not just handing that off to people to the average citizen is probably not a great idea. It's also pretty clear that that's, that's not something Facebook wants to get involved in directly. So um, themselves, I mean, they just, they don't want to take on that role or that responsibility. Apparently, uh, you know, what, what other alternatives do they really have? Yeah. I mean, a bi- a news bias is something I've been thinking about for a long time since college when I kind of studied it. That was a long time ago before the term fake news, you know, meant what it means today. Um, it's a tough one. You know, newspapers used to, you know, when newspapers had huge staffs, you know, tons of writers and tons of editors and all that, they used to uh, combat the bias, you know, by having editorial boards. And, uh, you know, you would, you would, almost like a board of directors, you would intentionally appoint people of various different opinions. So, you know, you would have, somebody who is far right, somebody who's far left, a bunch of moderates, some academics, you know, people on your editorial board. And if, if the newspaper was slanting one direction or in another, you would, you know, somebody in the editorial board would speak up about it and there would be a debate. And the people there would typically be more interested in the, in the actual debate and getting it to be, you know, kind of a, a unbiased newsroom than they would the actual politics itself. But I imagine, you know, newspapers today are tiny, you know, in t- terms of the number of employees and all of that and the number of people looking at news stories before they actually go out. Um, you know, when they used to publish daily, right, you, I mean, you had a deadline of some point in the evening and, and the news stories didn't go out at any point earlier in the day. Like now, they, there's 24 hours. And, um, and uh, I mean, a lot of newspapers, like my local one, doesn't even have copy editors anymore. You know, and a lot of big news sources online, the the writer of the story, I mean, might be the only person ever to read the story before it actually is posted, and maybe one other person. And that would have been unheard of just a couple decades ago. So, I, you know, I, I like the idea of having a, a group of experts. You know, Facebook hired a group of experts, a kind of an editorial board, to meet occasionally, and sure. and they had people from all all different sides, and and with all who had just had the one common thing was trying to have unbiased news, whatever their political thoughts or affiliations and everything were. I think the problem is though, that that's a no win for Facebook because no matter how correct by whatever objective criteria you might want to throw down, that editorial board can only get it wrong to 
some segment of their audience. I think that, uh, Kevin, you nailed it earlier where, you know, there are going to be folks who believe that the New York Times um, is woefully biased or that uh, Fox News is woefully biased. And no matter how objectively an editorial board says that they are or aren't, there are going to be a lot of people that disagree with them. And that's going to reflect poorly on Facebook, which I think is why Facebook wants to get out of that business. And they will accuse the editorial board of being woefully biased. Right. Exactly. Yeah. One of the surprising things I remember from college was in a journalism class when we started talking about bias. One of the first things the professor asked was for, I forget if he did like a, we wrote them down or just said people raise their hands. And he says, do you think, the media in general, that was used to be a big term, the media, but it's not anymore because there's so many different, you know, there's like Fox News and MSNBC and everybody knows that they're not in a, some sort of big conspiracy together. Well, no, um, they split down the middle. There's the liberal yeah, media. Liberal, the right. They used to be the media. So everybody, at, at the professor asked, how many people here think the, the media has a liberal bias? And then asked how many people here think the media has a conservative bias? And the surprising thing was, is that the room was divided. And then the next question he asked is, how many people were surprised that there were half the, this room thought the opposite of them? Because everybody, and I, I, I'm a pretty liberal guy, but I thought the media had a liberal bias, which I enjoyed, you know, kind of, because it's like, I have a liberal bias, so why not, why not have my news have a liberal bias? But I was surprised that there were people that thought there was a conservative bias at the time. This is the early 90s to the news. And... Um, and there wasn't, and, and then the thinking for the concert, you know, the liberal bias thinking was that all the journalists went to liberal arts colleges and were politically active and all this and wanted to, you know, be progressive and all. And the thinking for the conservative bias at the time was that all of the news organizations were owned by huge corporations. You know, there were far fewer back then before the internet, and they were owned by companies like General Electric and such, and that you know they would have interests in you know, pushing a more conservative agenda. And I thought, why? Wow, I never thought of that. I was always thinking that the journalists might be more liberal. And here there were people thinking that the owners of the media outlets were more conservative. And it, was a, it led to a very interesting discussion. So you have the same kind of thing happening today, I think, is you have people who think that, you know, about all these news stories have a conservative bias or a liberal bias. And I don't know, you, you know, you tend to either see one or the other or the, or you, maybe you're more interested in the opposite, you know, being angry at the people that are the opposite of you. I, I do think that there is, there's definitely a large segment of the market that has a very clear bias, but part of me believes that it's not so much because of it's an inherent bias in their worldview. It's the bias that they're pandering to to get the traffic and the clicks that they're looking for, because that's ultimately what's driving so much of the internet right now is attention. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, uh, these headlines, the clickbait headlines, you know, they started out instantly enough years ago just being on fluff news, you know, trying to get you to click on things that were just entertainment news or celebrity news or just, you know, general interest pieces. And then eventually the clickbait headlines flowed over into real news items about, uh, you know, politics and, and uh, business and everything. And it's definitely frustrating to read a clickbait headline like you described, dive into the article and find out that, well, yes, there's some meat to the article, 
and in fact, it might even be meat, be meat that, you know, basically uh, agrees with my preconceived notions, but you end up walking away really disappointed that you clicked in the first place <laughs> because what you ended up landing on wasn't nearly as interesting or as enticing as the headline made it seem, even if you agreed with it that it's just, it's getting harder and harder to, to consume or to, to believe the headlines. And unfortunately, like I said earlier, and I think Kevin, Kevin was saying the same thing, that people can't tell the difference. And it's going to be very difficult for them to learn how to tell the difference because there's no incentive for them to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and a big part of what I learned back then is, you know, was headline writing. Um, and... And these clickbait headlines go against everything I was taught. You know, you should in the headline do the best you can to summarize the story. Uh, so, it, you know, these clickbait headlines are hiding the story. They're, right. They're, yeah, you'll, you'll never guess what secret there is to what. Yeah, they, yeah. and, and that, I wonder, through. you know, the, the professor that taught me headline writing, you know, what he would think today of clickbait headlines. It's funny. Every once in a while, I actually, I'm an unusual internet publisher in that I actually have an editor. Um, She's awesome. She makes me sound a hell of a lot better than I actually am. But what's interesting is to have some of these discussions with her about writing for the internet versus writing. And it is very different. And there are definitely some issues that she just has a very, very tough time not understanding. She understands why things are the way they are because you're going after clicks. You're trying to drag people along as opposed to give them information. But it definitely chafes uh, some of the decisions we end up having to make as we are uh, running, going through these articles. The, the article, the writing technique that I think of immediately when you mention newspapers is that I recall that uh, articles, newspaper articles are intentionally written in such a way that you can basically draw a line through them at any point pyramid style and drop off everything below the line and still have what's left make sense. Yeah. Yeah. Pyramid style. And what that, that that's exactly the opposite of what I'm seeing so often on some of these articles, which are not just something to keep you reading, but now some sites have gone to the point where it's something to keep you clicking to the next page of the article. So they're actually getting more page views by spreading an article across multiple pages and at the same time teasing every step of the way to try and encourage you to click through. Um, exactly the opposite of, of what I'm sure you, you learned in journalism school and certainly what I've heard of as being appropriate uh, newspaper writing technique. Yeah, and the practical reason was that if you were writing a story and then they had to lay out the newspaper later, they had a certain, we used to actually measure news story length in inches. Mm-hmm. So they had, you know, maybe they would say, well, we have about 15 inches of newsprint for your story. And it's going to be approximately this many words. And you would intentionally write more than that. So they never would run out of words to put there. Uh, so if it ended up being 16 inches, they would have enough stuff to put in there. But if it was only 13 inches worth of newsprint, they would just, cut out however many paragraphs off the end of your article. They wouldn't even have to read it. They just cut out the last paragraph, the paragraph before that, the paragraph before that. Okay, there we go. And then they print. 
Um, and that was the way that you would do it. Now it's different if it was an opinion piece or, you know, a feature story where it was, you know, written with some flair or whatever, but just a straight reporting the news. And, and then it worked great for people that are reading the, the news too, because you knew that you could get right to the point at the beginning. If you were interested after reading the first paragraph, you could keep reading and, you know, you know that you were getting the most important things first. And at any time you wanted to, you can just stop in the middle of the article and say, I think I've learned enough about this. I want to move on to the next thing. That's definitely not how the how things no. work today. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it'll be interesting to see exactly how this plays out if they end up doing some kind of crowdsourcing, if they end up doing any kind of vetting, not necessarily of the news sources, but perhaps of the people that they ask to vet the news sources. I don't know. It's, it's an interesting rabbit hole. It's a tough problem to solve. Um, I'm just interested in how it's going to turn out for, for better or for worse. And incidentally, this, this whole problem was kind of predicted way before the internet too, when the industry was talking about computers moving to online services or you know computer screens and things like that. One of the first things people thought of is, oh, you could, instead of just having all of this news, you could say, I'm interested in news about such and such. And you would just get that kind of news. And then people were worried that, well, if you claim that you're only interested in certain subjects and something happened outside of those subjects that you should know about, you would never see it. Mm -hmm. You know, like, for instance, if there was a revolution in a country in the middle of Europe uh, and you never said that you were interested in news about that, it may not be on your list, and then you wouldn't see that news appear, even though it's something you would want to know about. It's kind of an echo chamber kind of thing. And we were thinking in terms of topics, not in terms of uh, kind of this you know, political bias to news that we have today. Viewpoints. Right. Yeah. yeah. Viewpoints, yeah. yes. Yeah, yeah, we were thinking in terms of topics, but really what it became was the, yeah. the filter bubble. The fil- yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so and, and I got the feeling we're not, at the end of this, we're not in the middle of this. We're still at the beginning of this, yeah. trying to figure this out. So there's a lots more, lots more that can still go wrong. Yeah, yeah, and that will go wrong. You're such an optimist. Thanks, Leo. You betcha. <laughs> That's why I'm here. <laughs> Speaking of optimism, let's get in the car. Gary, you had something yeah. else about... Uh... Well, yeah, so uh, something lighter and more tech enthusiastic um, in a way. I don't know. They, I read about uh, this article about a company. It's called Cargo. And uh, the idea is really simple. The, they want to have these little vending machines kind of uh, in cars that are ride shares, so Uber and Lyft and, and the like. And the idea is that the driver can, in addition to their income that they're making through Uber and Lyft, they can sign up and they get this box of stuff. It's like candy and, uh, you know, just things you would find in vending machines, maybe even little things like uh, uh, perfumes or, you know, stuff that you would want. Um, and uh, they would have that in the, in the car and then you can buy it. So they even had like uh, you know, phone chargers, Advil, uh, energy drinks, that kind of thing. So the idea is you get in your Uber and there's this, tray of stuff and you can for i don't know how much a dollar two dollars you know you can get a milky way bar um and the driver would split the proceeds with the company so the company ships out all these things for them to stock their little box with um when they sell stuff i assume they do it through an app and then uh the driver keeps half the money and the other half the money goes to the company and then you get restocked so you get in your car and 
now there's extra stuff. Now, I, I think this is a good idea. It's kind of nice, and especially on some longer uh, Uber and Lyfts. You know, you, you get, in, get in from uh, someplace into the airport, and then you have a 30-minute ride and an Uber to the hotel. It might be a great time to actually enjoy a, a snack uh, and pay a couple bucks for it. Um, but on the other hand, sometimes I get into these cars and they offer me things like, you know, bottles of water and mints or chewing gum or something. And it's nice. And then I don't know how I'd feel about getting into the car and saying, oh, I've got some stuff if you like it, but you have to pay more for it. It's like a premium thing. So what do you guys think? I'm, I'm all over it. I think it's a, I think it's a very cool idea. Um, to me, the devil is in the implementation details. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I want it to be seamless. I want it to go through my Lyft or Uber app. Yeah. Um, I want it to uh, be, I just want it to be easy. Uh, the very first scenario that I thought of was exactly the one that you just mentioned. I've got a, it's like a 45 or 50 minute ride from my house to the airport if I take a lift. And that's an ideal time for something, be it a snack or a drink or something other than the generic bottle of water that a, a driver, which I've never had offered to me, by the way. Um, oh, yeah. No, no, they've always, I mean, they've been fine drivers, clean cars. I love, I love it. I, I really like the approach, but I've never had that little extra um, um, offer. Anyway, I just, it seems like a really good idea, but I also wonder at a practical level, where do they put it? I mean, you know, if, and if I'm in the front seat or the back seat, do I have to reach around all that kind of stuff? I think there's some interesting problems to solve. The um, uh, my my guess, did, have you actually seen how it's presented in a car, Gary? Or is they, it just- they have a picture on their on their site. It, it looks like a little box with a clear lid, and you can see the stuff. But I can't tell. It sounds like it's the kind of thing where the drive you can just take stuff out of it. You know, they, you know, you're in the car with the driver. You know, you're right. not going to just start stealing from the box. So yeah, I am. We've okay. talked about it. <laughs> <laughs> you're you're going to be, and I have all these peanuts I just got from the Apple. <laughs> this looks like an adorable idea. Um, but I, number one, I don't like having to download yet another app just to buy something. That's, mm. you know, you have to re-enter your credit card number, I'm sure. It's a good idea, but I think that Uber, Uber and Lyft can um, just steal it, eat their lunch, and then you already have the Uber or Lyft app and you can just make it an add-on to your ride. So I think it's a great idea that could probably be stolen very easily. Of course, the, the idea is they may want it to be stolen as in purchase, you know, the entire company purchased. Mm-hmm. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, right. but, uh, the current model, it wouldn't surprise me. You know, you've seen these kinds of things at various uh, businesses or stores where there'll be a snack tray and it's almost a... Uh, um, you know, a trust model, right? You could take a candy bar, but you have to promise to leave a dollar. Um, we know that Kevin wouldn't, but everybody else would leave a dollar. And I'm wondering if it's the same thing, but what happens in those cases is that it's the, um, the location, the shopkeeper or uh, the business owner, they actually buy this box. They actually buy upfront the contents of the box. So they're already out the money when they've got the box sitting in their place of business and they make the money back then and presumably more than they paid, of course, by selling all those individual pieces. I'm just wondering if that's the kind of model that they're going after here in the car and they're just moving it to the car. Well, I, th- I think it, it says on the website that they, you don't buy the stuff, that the company will ship inventory to you and then basically you are 
giving them, you know, through the app, half the money back. So you don't pay for any of the stuff as the driver. Interesting. Um, so that was interesting. I do remember those, those things. I had one of those, um, I had a different experience with those boxes of candy bars. And that was that a, a company that, uh, claimed to be a, a charity. <laughs> I, I, I think I probably verified that they were cause I was very suspicious, um, would have this box in the front of our office and, uh, stop, and that some guy would come by and stock it every week with stuff. And then there was a little box and you could shove your, shove your little $1 bills in there and then take the, take the candy. So, it, we didn't have anything to do with it except allowing them to have some space in the front office mm-hmm. um, and then trusting that they were not a scam, uh, which I don't know if I would trust today. Back then, it was, back then I was suspicious they were a scam. Today I would be sure that something like that was kind of a scam. Like, yeah, sure, this is going to charity. You know, it's probably 1% going to charity or something like that. Well, you've probably got a lot more resources today to check them out, though. That, that's true. I know a lot of those, uh, there's a lot of things, a lot of scams like that, like those little boxes that you donate clothes to, you know, on the street. They look like dumpsters, but they, like they're closed donation things. Mm-hmm. A lot of those are not, either not charities at all, right. uh, they're for-profit, or they're charities only in that tiny, tiny percent. Uh, actually goes to charity. So right, yeah, I, we have, I, we have a, a business like that here in, in town and um, it's the same thing. It is a for-profit company. They really don't try and hide it except that they take quote unquote donations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's kind of an implication that you're giving something to a charity when you make a donation, but in fact you're not. And they love so, to put American flags all over it to make you feel, <laughs> you know, yeah. I don't know, better about, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Anyway, I look forward to uh, to having the option to uh, have a Snickers bar on the way to the airport next time. It's a cute business idea. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. So we're good. A, they just got some funding is why they were in the news. So hopefully with that funding, we'll see it. Um, I, I love to... I love to say whenever something new like this happens, I want to, <laughs> you know, I want to be one of the first people to see it. You know, if, it's like whenever they, whenever in my city, if they announce like uh, Uber's doing, you know, self-driving cars, you know, I want to, where, where can I get one? I just want to go there and just try it. You'll have to take a regular Uber to get to it. Yeah. Then you can, you know. Exactly. That's what's going to happen. So cool. So, uh, so while we're, while we're kind of griping about stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Let me tell you about my fire experience. Um, I have, uh, I've got gadgets. I mean, we all do, I'm sure. One of the gadgets I got several years ago, not long after it first came out, was an Amazon Fire TV stick. And I have that plugged into a TV in my basement that I watch while I'm on an elliptical. And I tend to hit the elliptical for about half an hour every morning, most mornings. And I use the TV stick, the Fire TV stick, to watch either shows off of Netflix, which is kind of nice, or YouTube. It depends on whether, I, whether, whether I'm feeling like I want to escape and let my brain rot, in which case I'll watch some random you know, entertainment show on Netflix. But if I want to try and improve myself, then I'll go to like maybe some TED Talks off of YouTube. Unfortunately, apparently, Google and Amazon are having this kind of arm wrestling match right now. So on Google, or YouTube used to have 
a native app that ran on the Fire TV stick and a bunch of other Amazon devices. That app doesn't exist anymore. It got yanked. Uh, the reason it got yanked is because you can't buy uh, a Google device in the Amazon store. So basically, because Amazon can't sell their products, I'm sorry, because Google can't sell their products on Amazon, they've crippled their YouTube experience on Amazon products. And as it turns out, there is an alternative. The alternative is to fire up YouTube in a browser on the Fire, uh, on the, uh, fire TV stick. But that turns out to have a very interesting limitation. After about 15 minutes or so, the video starts to stutter and it starts to come to a complete halt. And of course, especially with the kinds of thing I'm watching, how long is your average uh, TED talk? About 18 minutes, sometimes 20 minutes. So I find myself having watched three quarters of a TED talk and then getting frustrated because Google and Amazon won't play nice to, with one another. You guys experienced any of this? Well, I thought I had heard that the feud was coming to an end and Amazon had decided at some point to sell Google Home. You know, and, and then I just did a search on Amazon for Google Home and uh, I, you come up with Amazon Echo. <laughs> so, so not, not currently. Uh, right. They were talking about it last month. Yeah. They yeah. said that they were in, I think the phrase was productive discussions. But clearly, nothing productive has happened yet. Yeah, it hasn't. Um, yeah, no, it's uh, it's interesting. Hopefully, they will come to it. I have one of those Fire TV sticks too that I bought when they had like a deal you can get it for like twenty bucks or something. Yeah, they're, they're really cheap. Yeah, but I and I've never I, I bought it because it was cheap and I thought I'd find a use for it and I, I never did because every TV I think I've bought since then has already had all the apps on it, you know, for right. Netflix and YouTube. Right. And all that. So it's like, I don't really need the, the Amazon, the, the fire stick. This, the, the Amazon stick and Google's equivalent, Google Chrome uh, stick, they're nice little devices. They really are. They're convenient. They're handy. They're, they're perfect for the, for the scenario that I've laid out when they work. And like I said, they're also pretty inexpensive. So one of the solutions, and I don't know, if this is going to backfire on one of the decision makers or make one of the other decision makers feel really good about what they've done, um, I could just buy another Google Chrome. I've got more HDMI ports on my TV. I could just plug in both and just use whichever one is appropriate for the, uh, for the task that I'm looking at. Because again, as I mentioned earlier, I'm an Amazon Prime subscriber and Amazon Prime Video is only available through the Amazon Fire Stick. You can't get Amazon Prime Video on Google Chrome. So... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's uh, uh, turf wars, and you know, I I, I rarely uh, characterize myself as the uh, the poor consumer, but um, here I am, the poor consumer, taking it, uh, you know, getting the shaft because these two large companies don't want to play nice with one another. I just, I, I have no opinion on this. I, I have Roku on my televisions, and uh, it does everything I need to do. So, does it do? Um, all three of Amazon Prime, Netflix, and YouTube? Yeah. Maybe yeah, that's another solution. I find it interesting. Some TVs are sold with this you know, Roku built-in kind of idea. Mm -hmm. um, and other TVs are sold with no system like these Samsung TVs that I have. 
they just have the apps on them. And, you know, I, it's like kind of not, there's really no difference. I mean, because in the end I can do Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, and uh, YouTube and many others. You know, I, I don't care if it's branded Roku or it's somehow tied in with their software or it's just the Samsung software. Um, and, and then the funny thing is that I don't use any of it because I have an Apple TV hooked up to it and that, and Apple TV has all those things and the interface is nicer. <laughs> so I just switched to Apple TV and, and as of, I think late last year, you can get your Apple, Apple TV on Amazon. Well, yeah. Or the opposite. Yeah. You can get the Amazon, your Amazon, uh, prime video on Apple TV, um, which right, is, but you could actually buy the device. Oh, from- you could, oh, you could, oh, so you could do both. Well, kind of makes sense. <laughs> right. So, so Apple and Amazon don't have it. Apple and Amazon have always had a weird thing because for the longest time, you're right, you know, you couldn't get Amazon Prime Video on Apple TV, but you could get it on the iPad. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it was the most bizarre thing for years. You could watch it on the iPad just fine, even download the stuff that was they allowed to be downloadable so you could watch offline. Right. Um, but they didn't have it on Apple TV and whatever for whatever reason they, they did it, I guess you would think, well, okay. Cause they didn't want Apple TV because there was, a, they were a competitor to the, the fire stick and, and all that. But the iPad was a competitor to their tablets, to their yep. you know, Kindle fire. So that the argument didn't make any sense. The whole thing didn't make any sense, but now yeah. it's at least in the Apple world, not the Google world yet. It's kind of everybody's at peace. Yeah, I just want it all to work. So maybe I will take a look at getting a Roku box if they're not too terribly expensive and see if that doesn't solve all my problems with a single solution. I'm sure it will solve all of your problems. <laughs> Thank you, Kevin. As long as, you, as long as you don't steal it, we're good. <laughs> okay. So uh, how, are we, how are we doing here? Do we have uh, time for another story? or? Yeah, I don't, I don't know when we started, so I don't know when we're supposed to end. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I think we've got, we've got time for one more. I'm really interested in this voice AI thing, Kevin, that you, uh, you added to our list. Sure. I saw this little article. Um, which I found super interesting about how Google has created a system, which I believe is called, if I, I believe it's called Tacotron 2, uh, which, uh, <laughs> it's a great name, uh, which is uh, a system that speaks and it sounds just like a human. Um, the, the, the version that I have this article is about that, that has uh, audio samples for, uh, it sounds like a, a human adult woman. Um, and they have audio of a woman speaking an actual human woman. And they have audio of Tacotron talking, saying the same phrases. And you can't tell the difference. They sound, uh, both completely, uh, normal and, and, and human. So, uh, I don't know. I think there's a lot of interesting, implications i'm tired uh implications (laughs) here um just i mean how just about how a things like uh i don't know phones and and audio systems and and siri and that sort of thing are going to be even better and sound more human but then also at what point are we going to not be able to trust the things we hear when you i don't know hear a politician say something what if you didn't really say it because it tacotron was talking to you um so I, I think we're already at the point of that potentially being a problem. Yeah. I look at it also. So one of the things I do for Ask Leo is I narrate each of my articles and provide that as an audio podcast. It's not a podcast in the true sense that I'm not just sort of 
talking about stuff or riffing with people like we are here, but it's more of a narration, literally just reading the words off the screen. Sure. Um, if this is the kind of technology that you could feed an article to and have it be read in a natural format or sound natural, uh, that would be, I think, an amazing step for um, for the blind, for people who have who have uh, vision problems. Uh, you know, it's just sort of a, a generic drop random text in and actually be able to listen to it for hours without feeling like you're listening to a machine. Mm-hmm. And also, pre- people with uh, you know speech disabilities, you know, to be able to uh, you know type and then have that read. Oh yeah, you know, in, in a voice that uh, you know is far from the the Stephen Hawking. Uh, you know, voice that you know it's become kind of iconic, um, right? Um, for him. um, who was the the movie critic that had that had uh, throat cancer? Um, I don't know. Yeah. Um, yes. Sis- and Ebert, uh, Roger um, Ebert. There we go. Ebert. Yeah. Um, he towards the end of his life was using a device to uh, uh to communicate because he couldn't speak anymore oh. because of the cancer. I didn't know that. And Apple actually took the step of creating a voice out of his previously recorded samples so that uh, it sounded, the voice sounded more like him. Uh, They unveiled it for him and I think his wife, and they were just blown away by it. But it still sounded like a computer talking. And I'm wondering if this might be one of those cases where if they move this forward uh, to arbitrary, more natural speaking text, with arbitrary voice, um, this could be a real, like you said, a real, a real interesting thing for people that are having speech problems. I actually have done the thing where I've had a, a book that wasn't available in audiobook, uh, or I actually, I think in this case, I was actually reading, uh, reading on the screen, and I, and I was in a situation where I couldn't be holding it. I just wanted to listen. Um, and there's a trick you can do on in the, in the Apple iBooks app, where if you can select the text it's it's tough to select more than you know what's on the screen but you can do it you can select a large amount of text and then you can have it speak it to you and it does it in one of you know in the siri voice on an ipad or iphone and it's a little kludgy it's definitely something where i I could see apple not wanting to upset the uh the publishers who probably don't want this to you know you to be able to easily listen to a book like this or record the words like this Um, but you can do it and after the first sentence or two where it sounds a little awkward because it's a computer read voice, you, that kind of melts away and you, you can listen to the book like that. Sometimes it gets words wrong or special text and you know, the numbers. Sometimes I get words wrong. I said implementations before. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And you know, so it's, it's not perfect, but you know, it's, uh, it's good enough to listen to. I also wonder what implication it has for the audiobook world. Um, we have a, uh, you know, a mutual friend, David, who's big into um, audiobook uh, voiceover work recording, uh, which you can do, you know, anybody can do. They can audition for, uh, what is it, ACX, I think, through, uh, through Amazon so that you could actually do the audiobook. You could be the voice of one of the books that they need um, voiced. And I'm wondering if this is a case where this technology taken far enough uh, could put that entire class of work um, out to pasture. Mm. Yeah, I, I I don't know. I think I so I'm I'm an audiobook addict. I just devour audiobooks. I'm on like Audible's highest tier because I just read so much. Um, 
And a lot of the best ones, uh, they, they're performances, really, almost. I mean, yes. different voices that, you know, these, uh, the, the voice actors do. I mean, some of them do have actually different people reading different parts, but some, uh, some of the best ones are just one person reading and they do different voices. You know, Will Wheaton does a ton of books and, and his taste and which ones I guess uh, he does or which ones uh, he gets asked to do. It seems to perfectly match my taste in books because it seems like every other book I, I listen to is read by Will Wheaton. Um, and yeah, he's one of those voice actors that could just do all the different, uh, you know, voices. So you don't get confused about who it is that's speaking. Cause when you read the text, sometimes it doesn't say there's a dialogue back and forth. You, we just take it for granted that we could figure out who's speaking. And then when somebody's reading it to you, if they don't do a good job, it can get confusing, but uh, good voice actors can do a, a great job. Um, and then of course, there's a lot of audiobooks that are read by the author, especially biographies, memo, uh, um, you know, memoirs, things like that. Um, and those are irreplaceable having the, the actual real voice. It's interesting. They're irreplaceable. And yet there are definitely authors who are writers for a reason. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's, there's at least one fairly popular author right now whose audiobook I won't get because I have one of the previous books that he voiced himself and it was extremely difficult to listen to. Um, it just was not up to up to par. I appreciate understanding what he sounds like, because I think that adds a flavor to your understanding of of the book, the world, the, the you know whatever the background is. But to then have to listen to that for the entire book was a bit much. Yeah, the the ones I was thinking more of is the people that are actually uh, entertainers or you know in show business. Right, you know, like Steve Martin's book, John Cleese's book, uh, right. you know, that kind of thing, where you yeah. get Eddie Azard's book, you get a lot out of them reading it, um, and uh, even if they even if they just read every word, you get a lot out of it, having it be in their voice. But a lot of times they have asides and extras that they add in uh, when they're they're actually doing. I think it was Billy Crystal actually has a in one of his books, he actually performs some of it in front of a live audience, so. That's cool. Yeah, that was really cool. Um, so I think uh, I think that can kind of wrap it up. Yeah. What do you I guys think? think? We did the hour. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, well, I guess that's it. Do we have a quick quick minute to talk about uh, personal projects and what we're reading and anything? Uh, yeah, if anybody's got anything, yeah. I already talked about my uh, my uh, uh, Hitchhiker's Guide thing. That that was my my weekend. <laughs> what about you guys? Yeah, I don't have uh, anything techie i think that i've been doing this last week i'm just working on as i said a new game uh i haven't done an ios app in a in a while been focusing on online courses but uh so uh, i'm excited to uh maybe start testing uh a new game this week and maybe i'll mention it when it when it comes out in some future week fun i've just been playing a little bit more with uh with video it's one of those things that i did almost no video last year for ask leo and i need to get back in the saddle so i've been playing around with some stuff it's interesting because it's uh one of those things where you kind of sort of want it to be quiet around uh and when you've got a couple of dogs that like to bark at the drop of a hat that can get interesting yeah indeed excellent uh, well, this has been the Tech Enthusiast Hour podcast. Uh, thank you for listening. Show notes for this week are at tehpodcast.com slash teh8. If you all want more from us, we are also on Twitter at, at the teh podcast. And you can find us on Facebook at 
facebook.com slash the TEI. Did I say the Twitter one wrong? The Twitter at the TEH podcast. I feel like I said it wrong. And on Facebook at facebook.com slash the TEH podcast. It's, it's uh, hard to type and hard to say. <laughs> Do you try typing it three times fast? That's right. Uh, we'll see you uh, here again next week. And uh, thank you for podcasting with me, guys. This was fun. Yep. Yep. As always. Yep. See you guys.